0: It's challenging to find a real uh, case of IgG-foretted disease because there is so much mimicker of the disease. Actually, there was just uh, anecdotally saying that in most of the igg related disease clinic, up to 60% of the
1: people that are referred for IgG-foretted disease end up being something else. That's Dr. Hugh Alar-Shamar. He's a rheumatologist and assistant professor at the University of Sherbrooke Where his research focuses on immunology and igg4 related disease he's our guest on around the room a podcast brought to you by the canadian rheumatology association welcome back i'm daniel ennis and unfortunately janet pope will not be joining us on this episode so you're all stuck with me for for today before we get to our guests i want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics these are going to include sjogren's disease auto-inflammatory diseases and more episodes of Clinical Pearls where you can submit cases to us uh, to, to listen to us bumble through them. If you have questions you would like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or by email info at room.ca. For our Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. Now on with our show and our guest, Dr. Alar Shamar. Hugh, welcome to Around the Room. Many thanks for having me. We're really excited to chat. So you've actually hosted a French language version of this podcast, and I understand there's going to be a few in the works down the road, so I'm excited to to hear about those as well. But today, we are going to pick your brain about IgG4-related disease. You ready to chat about that? Yes, of course. Okay, fabulous. So to begin... I'd like to set the table for listeners with what I think is a pretty fundamental question, and it may sound easy, but perhaps it's more complicated. What is IgG4-related disease?
0: It's actually, as you said, it might look like an easy question now, but we have to realize that IgG4-related disease is kind of a new disease because although it has been there for a very long time, we're not able to pick all the Q and put it together as a whole entity. So I think the first description we have in the literature date back from 1888 uh, from a surgeon, Mikulik, who described the first patient with swollen uh, gland in the ENT sphere. But really, we started to have a better understanding of what could be IgG4-related disease in 2001, where um, a group of Japanese made the association between type 1 uh, autoimmune uh, pancreatitis and elevated IgG4 uh, in the blood. And then the disease kind of was born in 2006. Uh, so I'm kind of escaping your question. So what is it really? (laughs) So in the end, um, IgG4-related disease is a fibro-inflammatory disease with plasma blast infiltrating organs that could be associated with elevated IgG4, but not always. But it is a feature, at least on the pathology.
1: And why is it important to distinguish it as a fibro-inflammatory disease versus uh, you know, lumping it in with the other autoimmune diseases that we tend to see here auto-inflammatory diseases, what makes it fundamentally different than those?
0: Well, I think it's its own entity with its own evolution, and it's definitively challenging to find a real uh, case of IgG-related disease because there is so much mimicker of the disease. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was just uh, anecdotally saying that in most of the IgG-related disease clinic. Up to 60% of the people that are referred for IgG forated disease end up being something else. Oh, wow. So there are plenty of mimickers. But when you find it and it's really IgG-fluorated disease, usually the treatment is relatively easy. It's a disease that responds fairly well to a glucocorticoid, for instance. So I think it's important because the set of treatment is different, mm-hmm. and the evolution is different. And, and yes, we can definitively change the course of this disease by our treatment.
1: I see. So that kind of then leads nicely into my next question, which is, can you kind of describe to us the clinical spectrum of, of the disease that you see in your clinic? What are the phenotypes we should be looking for clinically?
0: It kind of goes into two things. How do we make the diagnostic and what can we expect to find? So I'll start by saying that if you go back and look at the classification criteria, which I won't go through all the classification because it would be too long, but it's a three-step classification. And I think it's uh, it's helping us to a bit understand what we should be expecting or not. Mm -hmm. So the first, uh, that is kind of an inclusion criteria. You must have a fibroinflammatory mass somewhere or uh, retroperitoneum uh, fibrosis. So you must have one of these, di- these fibroinflammatory masses somewhere. Then you kind of have a bunch of um, exclusion criteria. So for instance, patient must not have cytopenia, not have fever, not have feature of Castleman disease, not have feature of uh, Erdem-Chester and so on. So it mu- you must thoroughly um make sure that it's not another mimicker. And then the third part is a score. Uh, so you combine serologic, pathologic, and biorgan organ uh, manifestation. You lump all of that together and it will give you the likelihood of you being facing IgG for a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we take all the patients that successfully are classified as IgG-4 related disease, we really have four different type of presentation. So we have the pancreatico-hepatobiliary manifestation with the type one uh, pancreatitis. So that is the main manifestation. Then there is the group two where, where, where we have retroperitoneum fibrosis and artitis, and this kind of manifestation. Then we have the type three, which is the head and neck limited disease, which was actually one of the first uh, group that was discovered because it was mimicking uh, Jogren. So these were patients, they were ANA negative, but with the profound uh, sick and swollen of of the ENT gland. Mm -hmm. So that's the third subset. And then we have a fourth uh, subset, which is called Mikulik syndrome and systemic. These patients present and are the one that people that kind of tend to mark people um, mind because they have fibroinflammatory masses a bit everywhere. They're a bit more florid. They have more IgG4 in the blood. They are a bit more severe. So that's the fourth uh, type that we can have. As I always point out, this disease has been only known for a few years. And why is that? Because it it is very pleomorphic in its ma- manifestation and presentation. So one should not stop and saying it should look like that. There, there are criteria that comes more often, obviously, but we have to keep in mind that there's there might be more manifestation. And speaking to that, when we take these patients when we do tap scan, in eighty percent of the cases we find additional fibroinflammatory masses somewhere else that was asymptomatic at time of diagnostic. So we don't do PET scan on everybody, obviously, but just speaking that we definitively have uh, manifestation throughout the body.
1: So these phenotypes are kind of conceptual. They are common that certain symptoms and certain organ involvement do pool together, but it's not exclusive in that you can't have Involvement of the pancreas w- and no involvement of some of the other organs you mentioned. It's just that there's there's a likelihood that these things pull together. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, that's exactly I think how we should conceive this classification. Okay. Nothing is mutually exclusive, but something tend to cluster together more
1: hmm. frequently. And you went through the classification criteria, and I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a bit of a sense about. How you actually work up the disease in terms of do you have kind of a standard laboratory approach? Are there common things that you, you alluded to mimic? So, are there common things that you look for in your preliminary blood work that a rheumatologist should take away from this discussion? As if I'm looking for IgG4 disease, I must check tests one, two, three. These must be done. Anything that you can kind of give us to add to our our order sets?
0: Yes. So there are plenty of things that you can find in the blood, uh, definitively. But I always start with a complete blood count because usually you should not have cytopenia Mm -hmm. and eosinophilia can be present but should not be above 3,000 per milliliter square uh, because one of the things is that eGPA can be a mimicker of IgG for disease. So there is kind of this narrow, you can have some ears in the field, but not too much. If you have too much, you must think of something else. Uh, usually, depending of the clinical manifestation, you must rule out uh, Jogren, sarcoidosis, and all the ANCA related uh, vasculitis. So it's not in every case, but most of the case, we have to uh, rule these disease out. I always I make a, a panel to make sure that the kidney are working properly because we can have tubular interstitial and uh, nephritis. And there is a lot of GI manifestation. So always make sure that the, your liver function are good. Mm-hmm. Then I check for complement. So a lot of these patients, especially the patient with kidney involvement, will be hypocomplementemic. So that kind of gives me another additional I think, to look at when they are hypocomplementamic, I do my uh, cryoglobulin to make sure that it's not, well, it does not give fibroinflammatory masses, but you never know if it was a lymphoma, for mm-hmm. instance, with cryoglobulin. Then you need to be a bit creative to be sure uh, that you're not having one of this mimicker uh, in front of you. Um, then the total IgG are usually high, and then IgG4 might be high. Not 100% of the time, but I definitively will check it.
1: And can you give us a bit of a range on that? So how often is the IgG4 actually elevated? Does it matter if all of the Ig's, like IgG subclasses are elevated? So is there a ratio that we should use? And um, what's the typical range that we're looking at for this disease? What should we usually bump into if we're actually diagnosing it? It
0: depends of the subset of when I say that there is four kind of phenotypic IgG4 that you can come across. So usually what we notice is the type 4. So the systemic one have the highest IgG4 in the blood. And the patient with um, uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis and aortitis are the ones that are the most likely to do not have elevated IgG4. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a number uh, for for every uh, on top of my uh, on top of my head. But what I can tell you is when we do the classification of the patient, if you have some elevation above five time, the upper limit that gives you a lot of point toward classification as IgG for related disease. And usually we tend to say that you need to have at least two time to to consider uh, IgG4 disease, Also, although some won't have, but it kind of helped to categorize a uh, patient. The, um, the other thing that I want to point out when we're talking about elevated IgG4 in the blood is that any chronic inflammatory disease will lead to some increase in IgG4 at some point. So when the classic, if you have a long standing uh, RA patient, you might have elevated IgG4 in the blood, but usually it will be in the twofold. Uh, It will not be tenfold, the upper limit. So this is why uh, we have this kind of gradation in the uh, classification uh, criteria. And overall, if you take all the patient together, it's roughly 20% of the patient that will have IgG4-related disease that will have IgG4 that are below two times the upper limit of the
1: normal. So certainly not not a perfectly sensitive test. And even when it's it's elevated, not a perfectly specific test, we still have to contextualize it. We still have to do the clinical work of, of going through the exclusion criteria and all of that. So, um, you know, further to this point, if you have a patient who you suspect the disease in, I'm wondering what tissue would be best to biopsy? You know, is the retroperitoneal fibrosis, if it's amenable, are you going to get lots of information there or you, should you look elsewhere?
0: Yeah, so it really depends of where are your masses. Mm-hmm. So I will see that uh, lymph node, um, ENT, uh, gland uh, sw- that are swollen are usually way easier to biopsy. Um, often, I would say that in the process, sometimes we have to come across lymphoma, so sometimes we have more argument to go and take a little piece of somewhere. But when it's artitis and uh, retroperitoneum fibrosis, often the yield of the biopsy is not good. And we have to assume uh, at some point if we can, if cannot have, because it's these are biopsy that are not um, easy to perform. The risk of complications is relatively high. Mm-hmm. And often um, for um, retroperitoneum fibrosis, and for um, lymph node, we don't have the full pathology of IgG4 related disease, so we have to be uh, a bit mindful when we submit patient to biopsy that the yield uh, might not be as high as we would have liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we compare to um, a fibroinflammatory mass on one kidney, to say something, that these are usually more typical of uh,
1: pathologically,
0: at least. Mm-hmm.
1: If you're going for a lymph node, are you happy um, with, you know, fine needle aspirate or core biopsies or do you, do you require the excisional biopsy to really get the architecture? I
0: think the architecture is kind of crucial because we will look at a few things and one of the exclusion criteria is it must not be Castelman disease, mm. which Castelman disease can literally mimic on the pathology almost all the features of igg related disease. But you must uh, well, do all your workup for Castleman uh, disease. And you need to find these, um, I don't know how you call them in English, but the onion skin uh, le- lesion with the the artery that is going to the center. Mm-hmm. So so that on a n- needle aspiration is very hard to see. And one of the features of IgG-farented disease, that is the storiform fibrosis, which is not easy to see uh, from the start. So in a lymph node, it's even harder to see. Mm-hmm. So if you want to maximize your chance of not having to submit your patient to multiple
1: biopsies, it's probably good to go for the, the real one from okay. the start. Good to know. So once you've decided on a tissue to biopsy and you actually biopsy it, what do you actually see?
0: Yes. So first of all, I'll try to say that uh, I try to avoid the lymph node if I can, because there is a lot of, uh, it's not as specific in the lymph node as in the other organ. If you have to venture there, then definitively do it. It's helpful to uh, eliminate all the hematologic uh, malignancy and so on. But if you're able to have a good fibroinflammatory uh, mass, uh, what you'll see is that you'll have uh, a very marked uh, lymphocyte and pl- plasma cell infiltration and uh, fibrosis in the tissue. As I was ma- mentioning, you should have a fibrosis that is called a storiform fibrosis, and often it's not easy for the pathologist to decide if it's storiform or not. But what we have to to remember about this fibrosis. It is a, a fibrous that is not organized. All the fibers are not in the same direction. So, um, sometimes it is one of the fibrous that can uh, disappear more easily with treatment. Uh, then we have to go and look for obliter- obliterative phlebitis. Uh, that, uh, if it's not mentioned, you have to look if your pathologist has stained the elastin. That's the easiest way to to see it. So you'll see the border of the vessel uh, with the elastin staining, and you'll see all the cells that are invading inside um, the, uh, inside the vessel. And lastly, I think IgG4 is to be stained. Um, so there has been a bit of a debate if on what is the the cutoff that could be that should be used. And I think it's probably depending of the organ in which we are looking but i would say that usually if we have more than uh, 10 igg4 positive uh, lymphocyte per per high power f- field are uh, more than 50% of the igg positive uh, lymphocyte are igg4 so 40% these are usually good sign that uh, it's probably igg4 related disease, but you still have to go through eliminating all the mimickers.
1: You know, we, we've we kind of been alluding to these things throughout our, our discussion here, but I'm wondering if you can kind of give me a little bit of a, you know, list of in in your clinic where you're seeing 60% of people referred are actually, actually end up not being IgG4 related disease. What do they typically end up being? Like, what are the common mimics that you're, you're seeing? You've alluded to some unusual diseases already.
0: Yeah. So, so we do see plenty of uh, mimicker, but I think if I go for more rheumatologic mimicker, so vasculitis can definitely be things that could mimic and could give you masses and a distribution that could look like IgG4 related disease. You can have the ENT involvement, sarcoidosis, uh also could give us uh this these feature. Then, um, there are some hematologic, um, malignancy that can definitively be a problem. I will go back to man just because it's, it mimics almost all the aspects. So we have to be very careful. Um, uh, but there are other, uh, malignancy, um, that could uh, give, th- that could give the change for, uh, IgG-fertile disease. Some long-standing, uh, infection, infection. Like Epstein Barr related uh, lymphadenopathy could be uh, confounding on more of the GI side. So inflammatory bowel disease, when it's long standing, can increase the IgG4. Can give you pancreatitis. It kind of have a lot of thing that could be uh, mimicking some osteocytosis, especially the um, Erdheim Chester will increase the IgG4. It can mimic almost everything, but usually you'll have the um, hairy kidney, and the involvement of the long bones. So you can uh, make the, the difference. Mm-hmm. And one of the last one that I think I must point out for the rheumatologist is called um, the myofibroblastic inflammatory tumor, which is something that we don't often hear. But I think it's important to to become a bit more familiar with this disease. So it's a disease that we often see in uh, younger Individual, and it can create uh, fibroinflammatory masses. One or a few. Uh, it is usually in the in the thorax. And if you do the biopsy, it literally can have all the feature of IgG4 on the biopsy. So elevated IgG4, storiform fibrosis, and so on. And you need to ask for anaplastic lymphoma kinase 1 staining to find that it's a tumor, it's a locally invasive tumor, and it will be not responsive to your first um, treatment with glucocorticoid. So this is, I wouldn't say the most frequent mimicker, but
1: definitively one that if you don't look for, uh, you can get in trouble later down the road. Okay, great. Thank you. And you've already, you've teed up our our next uh, subject here, which is, which is treatment. And you've made the point already that it, the fi- this fibroinflammatory inflammatory disease is kind of by its nature steroid responsive. Failure to respond actually makes you wonder if you're really treating IgG4 disease. So so let's kind of start from maybe the the beginning. How are we supposed to be treating IgG4 disease? Does everyone require treatment? Only some people? Maybe just starting there, and then we'll kind of tick through some of the tried and tested treatments.
0: I think most people with systemic involvement will end up requiring some treatment. When it's very limited, when it does not impact quality of life, I think we can be monitoring uh, the disease, but always keeping in mind that you can have manifestation that are uh, a bit more, um, well, medically involving. Like if you have the uh, the pancreatitis, you cannot do 50 of them in your lifetime. So I think that if you have one, then we're, uh, we're more prone uh, to treat patients. Um, so in the end, unless they have very limited ENT manifestation, I end up treating most of my patients. Um, usually, I start my treatment with uh, prednisone uh, at 0.6 to 1 milligram per kilogram uh, daily, and then after uh, two to four weeks, I will start the tapering at a rhythm of probably five milligrams every one to two weeks Uh, depending of the original burden of the of the disease i will try to tailor it and we so far have no uh, guidelines that are very well defined telling us how long we will have to treat patients but one thing i will point out is um when we go back in the registry and these are japanese data but after one year of treatment where they were tapering patient from three to six months, they had only 61 patient, uh, 61% of the patient that were in remission. So barely what it means is 40% of the patient relapse. So it is a disease that tends to come back. So you have to be monitoring the disease. Then usually what I do, uh, is I give them one chance to do one relapse, and then I just go back to the corticosteroid therapy. And if they are doing more than one relapse, then we have to think uh,
1: of advanced therapy. Mm. And so that that sets things up nicely. You know, you know, one thing that I notice is that IgG4 disease actually does have some literature on, um, on the steroid dosing, which we don't have necessarily great, um, you know, RCTs or even, you know, prospective or retrospective stuff in some of our other diseases to say, can we get away with low, medium, or high doses of prednisone? There is some literature in IgG4 that, that attempts to answer some of those questions. So, um, that, that's quite helpful when you reach for, um, a, a DMARD or a second steroid sparing agent, Can you kind of walk me through the process of which ones you choose and why? Right
0: now, we have a plethora of case series and case report with a lot of our DMARDs that have been used uh, relatively successfully. So, isitioprine, MMF, metotrexate, leflunamide, and rituximab. And for me, and I might be a bit biased because my research were on b cell uh, role in igg related disease. Uh, but usually, I will go for rituximab because mm-hmm. uh, it's very effective. And uh, as we understand this disease, um, the plasma blast and the activated B cell are really at the core of this disease. So when you remove them from the equation, usually patients will go in remission uh, relatively rapidly. And we have very, very few refractory cases uh, of patients that were not able to be successfully treated with rituximab usually the 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 reason why we have to go for another line of treatment after rituximab is because they develop allergy or they have seric uh, reaction to um, rituximab then we cannot use it anymore and then we have to go for something else
1: mm-hmm. So this is how usually I manage. And, and if you have to go for something else or rituximab is, is not, you know, going to be available to you. Of the other ones that you mentioned, I'm curious what you reach for first. I'm, I'm aware of, you know, um, our CTs of liflunamide and, and MMF, but I'm, I'm wondering, you, you also mentioned azathioprine and methotrexate. So how do you choose between all these things?
0: Yeah. So I think these are all relatively non-specific immunomodulatory drugs that are not specifically targeting the B cell, which are at the core of this uh, process. Uh, One of the things that we end up uh, kind of uh, discovering is that there are some set of T cells that are also involved in this disease, which are the um, cytotoxic CD4 T cell. Uh, So usually, and that might be a personal preference. Mm-hmm. I will go for metotrexite or MMF first. I think I'm I'm used to the this drug. And for patients who had mild manifestation, I think um, it's good. But I'm aware of the RCT with leflunamide. Also, I just didn't have the chance to use it uh, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. As often where I'm uh, practicing in Quebec, we do have uh,
1: good access to rituximab. So I rarely have to uh, go around and not use it. I see. Uh, and, and you know, just along the lines of the the T-cells uh, involvement in the disease, uh, I believe that you were involved in a, a prospective study on Abadicept, um for IgG4 disease. Can you kind of comment on the results that you found there?
0: Yeah. The study has been published, actually, and it seems to be, an option uh, for pa- patients who are not able to undergo rituximab therapy. But maybe I should uh, just quickly review what we think is at the core of this disease and why we thought that uh, abalaceb could be of use in this disease. So although we don't know what is starting the disease, uh, one of the things that we we know is that in the fibroinflammatory masses that we have, there are infiltration of plasma blasts and a lot of B cells that are IgG4 positive. And in the tissue, these B cells end up uh, working as antigen-presenting cell. And they activate um, cytotoxic CD4 T cell who are responsible for a lot of the damages that we have in the tissue. Mm. So where we could... Um, Act is we can either remove the B cell, which is what we do with uh, rituximab. And one of the things that was surprising for us when we studied this patient is when you use rituximab, one week after the CD4 uh, cytotoxic T cell vanished also. So they seem to be very depending on the antigen presentation from the B cell. But when you cannot deplete the B cell, the other thing that you can do is block the interaction between the plasma blast and the T cell. And this is what Abatacep is doing. So, this is why we uh, venture in exploring if this drug can be used. And it, it has
1: some efficacy and it can block this interaction and help to relieve uh, patient symptoms. Okay, great. And and uh, because we're, we're leaving treatment, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Dr. Molly Carruthers, who was, um, I believe, the lead author on that prospective rituximab trial from from 2015 um, that's kind of contributed to uh, its use for uh, IgG4 disease. And she works out here, so (laughs) I wanted to make sure I mention her. Um, Okay, so now moving on, looking forward, um, what's in the pipeline for IgG4 disease? What can we look forward to in the coming years in terms of diagnostics or treatment? So I think we'll get a better understanding of what is IgG-4 disease and what
0: is the role of IgG-4 in the disease. Maybe two things to say about that is when you look at the IgG-4 that are produced and you sequence them and you look at their clonality, what people have noticed is that there is an oligoclonal expansion of IgG-4. And you might not be familiar with the meaning of having this oligoclonal expansion, but it is something that we see when the immune system is facing one antigen or one pathogen. So what it has lead people to think is that like in other disease like NMO, uh, there might be one antigen that is a uh, underlying IgG4-related uh, disease development. So people are actively looking at antigen that could be uh, responsible for the, 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 the disease. So the, the other thing that I think we'll see uh, coming is what is the real contribution of IgG4 uh, to the IgG4-related disease. And we have some data that are now in mice. So we ha- always have to take them with a grain of salt. But based on the data that we have in mouse, uh, we do know that IgG4 are um, anti-inflammatory IgGs that are upregulated with chronic inflammation and they serve to protect from damages that could be uh, performed by other immunoglobulin. And if you have a mouse model and you take the IgGs from patients with IgG4-related disease and you infuse IgG1, IgG2, 3, and 4, what you'll notice is that IgG1 can induce lesion in the um, uh, digestive tract that is kind of reminiscent of what we have in IgG4 related disease. And if you put these IgG1 and 4 at the same time, you have less damages. Mm-hmm. So it does look like the IgG4 is acting as an antigen sink uh, to prevent further damages. So maybe they are not purely bystander as we thought originally. Uh, that has not been proved in human. It is mouse data so far. But I think that our comprehension of the role of IgG4 in IgG4-related disease will uh, likely improved and we'll have some more insight on the pathophysiology of the disease. In terms of treatment, I think we'll see... Uh, Uh, other B-cell depleting or B-cell, I don't know how to call them, but uh, impairing or disabling (laughs) (laughs) a drug that will be uh, used for uh, IgG-fermented disease. I am aware of a few trials that are um, on on their way with a new mechanism of action trying to basically uh, reduce the potency of B-cell to activate the T-cell in the tissue.
1: Well, great, it sounds like there's lots of interesting stuff on the way. So you know, before we let you leave uh we're we're trying to get to know our guests a little bit better on on the podcast. So we're asking them what book they're reading right now. So what's on your bedside table?
0: On my bedside table, and that's a good question <laughs> i I don't have anything. I just i I'm done. actually, I was rereading The Lord of the Ring because there will be a, a new TV show that will be released where they will be exploring everything that happened before the books. So I was kind of rereading that to put all of that in my mind fresh and be able to follow while I will be watching the series.
1: That's a great idea. I just saw the first episode last night, so I won't, I won't ruin anything for you, but I, I think that you're doing the right thing by, by pre-reading. Uh, great, well, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to chat with you about a really interesting and evolving topic. Well, thank you so much. It has been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R-Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Leslie Ishimwe. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Hugh Alar-Shamar. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fonwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.